Hi, I'm Bill Gaither, and welcome to More Than the Music, a podcast where you can join me for conversations with some of the most interesting people I know. Each episode features a special guest who has inspired me in some way during my 50 years in the music industry. You'll meet incredible artists, writers, and comedians, sports figures, and other folks I'm grateful to call my friends. Join me now for this week's episode of More Than the Music. It's going to be good. I can remember when the uh, trio first started. We were in Oklahoma City with a wonderful crowd, probably five, maybe 6,000 people hmm. back in 1972. And... Uh, and we had a great night, just a joyful, happy, good night with friends. And Gloria and I went out to the private terminal to get on our, our prop plane, two engines, to get us back to Anderson so we could go to church the next morning with our family. And uh, when I got out there, I saw a customized 707 and a little... <laughs> playing by it by the name of Lisa Marie and I said uh oh Elvis and so I asked the guy so he's performing here I said yeah and I said interesting I, and when I got to looking at it more I found out Elvis was coming in not for not not for 5000 people but for 20000 people wow not for one night but for three nights, mm -hmm. and not for a price that everybody could afford, $15, $20 a ticket, but $80, $90, $100 a ticket. And then for one brief moment, I let a little green monster <laughs> open a door uh. and rob me <laughs> of the joy of 5,000 people, people. Who, who thought I was pretty good. Yeah. Oh, sadly, when we compete and compare, uh, we lose the joy. In fact, I'm not even sure community can happen as long as we compete and compare. It just, uh, it destroys us. Then what do you say, uh, do you think there's a, such a thing as healthy competition? I think there's such a thing as healthy competition, but... When competition becomes the focus, the main focus, instead of what it is that's happening that you're competing in, then it becomes, we can misuse anything, whether it's competition or anything else. Uh, in fact, this last week I learned something new, a whole new idea for me, that even silence can be misused because I believe that we need to take time to be quiet to look inside, to reflect, to ask ourselves questions and all that. But my friend, I was saying this to my friend, and my friend said, oh, I used to work at the reformatory, and silence was used as punishment that put people in isolation, no sound, nothing. A wonderful gift of silence can be misused. So competition can be misused. Anything can be misused. <laughs> and for you who are just tuning in, um, 
my friends, when I say my friends, I have to say Gloria and my friends, are all across the spectrum. And we're talking uh, today to a dear, dear friend. And I'm trying to think of the years, uh, 30, 40? Oh, I, I, years don't compute with me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry but, about that. I can't tell you the year of anything. <laughs> And uh, and you don't mind saying now, uh, your age is ninety. I'll be ninety five next month. Yeah, this, and friends, this is the youngest ninety five year old that I know. And what you know, and what a lifetime you have you have lived about four or five lifetimes <laughs> in one lifetime, right? Right, that's probably true, but. But I'm grateful I've lived in the time of history in which I've lived. Really grateful. Born in uh, Birmingham? Uh, or Born Northern. in Montevallo, Alabama. Yeah. Probably a town you've never heard of. <laughs> and uh, at a very early age, you were, you were working in a factory? I was working in the steel mill in Fairfield, Alabama. I was, my father drowned when I was 16. And I was the youngest child in the family, so I was the one left at home. And my grandfather was still living, lived with us, my mother. Um, grandfather, never been to school a day in his life. My mother had about a third-grade education, so I was the one then who had to make a living for us so that we could eat. So I went to work in the steel mill. And at what age did you find your way from Alabama... <laughs> Up to Indi Indiana. Uh, I worked six years in the steel mill. Um, total shock. Uh, hated it. Hated every, every, well, not every minute of it, but uh, working in the steel mill for a young teenage girl. This was, we were making steel plates for ships. This was during World War II. So um, it was a whole different atmosphere than I had been accustomed to because I grew up in the church. And uh, it was it was a test. It was a real test. Uh, but in the late 40s, my grandfather died, and that left just my mother, who said to me, I know how much you want to go to school. If you can find a way to go, I can do laundry and take care of myself. So you just go if you can find a way. So I went in to see my surgeon. Uh, I'd had very difficult time during that year because those years because I lifted steel eight to 16 hours a day and uh, ended up having surgery. Owed my surgeon a great deal of money, so I went in to see him and said, I want to go to school, but I owe you a great deal of money. He said, if you can start paying me 10 years from now, that's fine. So <laughs> I'd never even been to Tennessee, <laughs> much less Indiana. Yeah. <laughs> so... I packed my suitcase and made my way to Anderson, Indiana. And you would have been how old then, uh, Ann? Uh, probably, probably 22. And you started uh, at, at, at and, and, uh, then it was called Anderson College, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, actually, 71 years ago, I was a freshman at Anderson College. Where did you meet your, the love of your life? Was, oh. it, was, was, that, in, was that in college? <laughs> Uh, he had already graduated from Anderson College yeah. and was uh, um, there was no seminary then, so he was doing graduate work in, 
and in Indianapolis at what was then called Butler School of Religion, now Christian Theological Seminary. But um, he was pastoring a little church in Anderson, and uh, some student friends of mine recruited me to work with the young people, uh, strictly on a volunteer basis. Uh, so I went out to meet the young people. Hadn't met the pastor, but I met the young people and was very drawn by them. And then I met the pastor, and I ended up marrying my pastor. <laughs> and, a mar- and a marriage of how many years? 53 and a half years. Yeah. Oh, the most wonderful journey in the world. Yeah. And during that time, uh, how many years did you spend in Japan? 26 years in Japan. Mm-hmm. Nathan was in Japan in 1945. The war ended in August. He went in in October as a part of the occupation. And Dr. Ugo Nakata, who was the premier church musician prior to the war, um, as soon as the war ended, he wanted to pull together a choir to do Handel's Messiah at Christmas time in 1945. Mm-hmm. And there were plenty of Japanese women, Christian women, who wanted to be a part of the choir, but very few men. So they recruited 75 servicemen, and Nathan was one of them. And so he participated with what a few months before had been considered the enemies. Both had, were considered each other enemies, and yet the love of Christ that had existed even all during the war brought these people together, and they did Handel's Messiah in 1945 in downtown Tokyo. Music can do that sometimes where... Uh just regular words for whatever reason mm-hmm. can't. Mm-hmm. And I have often said, if I were part of another world religion, I think I'd be a little bit jealous of the Christian faith just from the standpoint of the art and the music because there there are many people... Even in our field, I, 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 I have friends all over the country or, or mm-hmm. folks who have said, you know what, I don't necessarily buy into your theology, but I do love the music, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And it's amazing that you say Handel's Messiah at that point was able to reach across oh. a, a divides. And, and reached it, completely and, across. It just... you, you have been a uh, bridge for glory and me with what we have done with our lives. And as I said at the beginning of this podcast, our friends are all across the board, and we've always loved you because of the tent that you live under. You have a very, very broad tent. (laughs) 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 And I got a feeling that maybe... When we really study the life of Jesus, his tent was pretty broad also. And I, I, we love you for a lot of reasons, but, but your inclusiveness is pretty mind-blowing. And not just in the last 10 years when the word has become very popular. You were pretty inclusive 40, 50, 60 years ago. Let, let me say this. Your tent included a lot of folks. Oh, Yeah. And I don't, I don't get to vote. Um, I don't get to choose who's in and who's out 
I don't. I, I think everybody's. <laughs> I think God loves every person on the face of this earth. And another thing I believe with every fiber of my being is every person has something to teach me, bar none. Yeah. Everybody has something to teach me. The person who most shaped our missionary effort um, was the most unlikely person in the world. We met him the first week we arrived in Japan. Um, I was 26 years old. Nathan was 29. Um, we met this man uh, that first week. We didn't speak a word of Japanese, and he didn't speak a word of English. He was in his mid-60s, and we were quite young. Um, I can't explain it to you, Bill, but something happened. We connected. <laughs> there's just something happened. I, I, there's no explanation for it. Um, this is, we were st it was still under the occupation. Uh, this man had been very involved in the war. In fact, uh, if I would tell you more about this man, he was in his mid-60s. He was a devout Buddhist. He was a Japanese history teacher, had a fierce love of his country and of his and of religion. And um, he really operated a house of prostitution. Uh -huh. But I don't know what happened, but he, he somehow saw in us a desire to learn, a desire to, to discover Japan. So the first word I learned in Japanese was ikimashou, which means let's go. And he would come to our entranceway every morning, every morning. And he'd slide the door open and he'd yell, ikimashou. And I didn't know enough Japanese to ask him where we're going. He didn't know enough English to tell me. And I just put on my shoes and go. <laughs> he took me everywhere. He took me to... He took me to cremations. He took me to Shinto weddings. He took me to Buddhist funerals. He took me to cre. He took me. Every he took me to political meetings. Even he took me everywhere, and we would draw pictures and use the dictionary and use our hands, act out, do anything to communicate. Um, this man uh, gave to us a love for Japan that went with Nathan to his grave and will go with me to my grave. He actually gave us the tools for evangelism. He literally gave us that. Mm. He placed it on our hands freely. Why he did this? He, was, he also was purged because, of his, because he was, was under the occupation. Our government purged him. He was not allowed to hold office or to teach or do any of the main things because of his involvement in World War II. And yet he took two young Americans who were so green, who didn't know up from down. Uh, we used every word we learned on him. We, Well, it was just incredible. And he, he later on made it possible for us to get land for a church building because he had all the connections. And one day he went out into the community and rounded up all the children. And when I say a lot of children, I mean a lot of children. I'm not talking about 50 or 60. I'm talking about a a large group of children brought him to our yard and said to us, teach him. He gave us, he gave us the gift that was priceless. I, there's no way I can explain how grateful I am. He did get cancer. Uh, he did start coming to a Bible study. Um, cancer was very fast. We visited him every day, sometimes twice a day in the hospital. What I can tell, I'd love to tell you, he became a Christian, served God for many years, and 
made a major difference. I can't tell you that I, I never heard him make an, a verbal commitment to Jesus. But when we would walk into his room, he'd use all of his strength to pull his hands together and say, in a form, to say, please pray for me. And we would hold him and pray with him. I don't get to vote. This man gave to us <laughs> the tools for evangelism, a love for Japan that will go with us to our grave. You know, it's amazing to me, the, the especially with so much polarization. I, I don't think that's new. It's probably been around for a long, long time, but it seems like we see it more today in our culture today. But one thing that does bring us together, I'd like to say uh, it's music, but music many times can be a very divisive element. Mm. But, mm. But, but one thing that will pull a lot of folks together is the word pray. Would you pray for me? Yeah. And uh, and I, when I see that happening, in fact, we're singing the little Audrey Meyer course that she wrote about 50 years ago. When you pray, would you pray for me for I need his love and his care? When you pray, would you pray for me? Would you whisper my name in your prayer? Mm. And it's really mm. interesting to look out across the audience. If they haven't united before then, it seems like everybody is in one accord because everybody's in need. Everybody's right? in need. Everybody's in need. You mentioned the word cancer. Uh-huh. And, uh, and with Nathan, Nathan, you lost him uh, to cancer. It's inter- I can remember, and for you who are just tuning in, this is one of the uh, rich resources that Gloria and I have in our lives. Ann Smith, a retired missionary in Japan, and she's lived her last 20 or 30, I don't know how many years. <laughs> Quite a few. <laughs> Quite a few years in our neighborhood here, in our county, being a rich resource, not only to Bill and Gloria Gaither, but to many young ministers and uh, many young people who are trying to figure out what is life all about and where do we go. And I keep using the word rich because that's the best word I can think about. We are blessed to have these kind of relationships where we can tap in and say, and what do you think about this? Because we all deal with stuff like cancer, and you mm-hmm. you you have dealt with it personally. But I can rem- remember you had a brother and a sister who died of Alzheimer's. That's correct. That's correct. Am I quoting you incorrectly when I say I have dealt with Alzheimer's and I have dealt with cancer? Mm-hmm. I'll take cancer any day. That's true. Is that true? That's true. Nathan had cancer for 16 and a half years. Um, an incredible journey, uh, rich beyond expression, painful beyond expression. I kept looking for a way to describe the journey, and I couldn't find any way to describe it. Finally, I put two words together that uh, I'd never heard anybody put together before. It was a wonderful nightmare. <laughs> and that's exactly what it was a wonderful journey, but sometimes it had its nightmarish qualities to it. But, but oh, I wouldn't, uh, it, it was incredible the, uh, the depth, 
of learning and discovering and uh, the the increase of 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 this feeling of intimacy and love and being blessed uh it was it was it was an incredible journey and there was never anything wrong with nathan just his body had a hard time but with my <laughs> brother and my sister uh, their bodies kept functioning but their minds went um as a result of those experiences with that i've come to believe that uh, people who cannot forget are worse off than people who cannot remember. Now say that again. I believe that people who cannot forget are worse off than people who cannot remember. Um, (laughs) People who can't forget the wrongs done to them, can't forget the bitterness, can't forget the... Or people who cannot forget the experiences they've had and they have nightmares at night, they can't forget. And my brother and my sister couldn't remember anything, but they didn't have that. Uh, so even the Alzheimer's, I, have a, I choose a theme for my life every year, and my sister gave me a wonderful theme. Uh, I cared for her in my home for as many years as I could, and I finally had to put her in a place because I could no longer do it 24-7. Uh, and I would go to see her every day and spend a couple of hours with her, and I in the process, I'd learned the only way to really, really connect with an Alzheimer's patient is to be totally present. I mean, totally present. And one day, I had what I thought was a very important engagement after I've spent time with her. So I went to see her and spent two hours with her. When I got ready to leave, I could push the numbers on the door, but she was hanging on to me, and she was still able to walk and talk, and she was strong, and I couldn't get away. So it all became about me, and I sat down beside the door, and I said, Jerry, I don't know what else to do for you. I do everything I know how to do, blah, 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 blah. She looked me straight in the eye, and she said, does Ann know about this? And <laughs> I, it was still all about me, and I said, Jerry, I am Ann. And she looked me straight in the eye, and she said, no, you're not. Ann wouldn't treat me like this. Ooh. I felt like I'd been stabbed. I finally got away, and I got out to my car, and I put my head over on the steering wheel, and I said, God, what really happened back there? What What are you saying to me? What I realized was she couldn't let me leave because I hadn't been there. My body showed up, but I didn't. And and it was a wonderful—so when January came around and I was choosing my theme for the year, I chose my theme to show up where my body is. And— uh, you know, and I know, Bill, that we can be one place, our body can be one place, and we can be in a totally different place. And the greatest gift we ever give to anybody is to be totally present. Present while we're there. Really present. And I, and I know you, and I know your heart, and it's hard to receive this, but, but Gloria and I know very few people who are as present as you are, and you've been present for us many times. I resonate fully with being present. I'll never forget when our kids were growing up, um, we were all around the table, all five of us. Mm-hmm. And evidently, my body was there, mm-hmm. but I was not there. Mm-hmm. And so the kids said... Uh, Dad, you know, pay attention. And Gloria said, Bill, 
pay attention. And basically we're saying, you know, and they said, I, I said, well, I'm here. And they said, no, your mind's a thousand miles away. Mm-hmm. And I said, how long has this been going on <laughs> to my family? <laughs> and they said, for years. And I kid you not, at that time, the phone rang. It was a telemarketer. And he said, hello, is the head of the family there? <laughs> <laughs> to which I said, which I said, no, he hasn't been here for years, according to his family. <laughs> you know. This podcast is being sponsored by the folks at Game Show Network. Game Show Network is dedicated to creating family-friendly, fun programming that's right for everyone. They've got great shows, morning, noon, and night, and their afternoon block of original programs from four to eight are the kinds of play-along, laugh-along shows that you can watch no matter who is in the room. Great to share with your kids or your grandkids. It's the kind of entertainment that will have everyone shouting their answers along with the television as they all watch the same screen. And these days, we know it's tough to get everyone to agree on Well, just about anything. If you're looking for entertainment that the whole family can enjoy together, the answer is Game Show Network. I know that is very true. And and the reason we love to be with you is it's fun to be with people who are totally there. And I'm sure you feel as though you miss it at times, too. Oh, but oh. you've taught us so much at that point of being present. It's it's so critical that we be present. And to learn that from your sister who is walking through a door that you know you're not going to be able to go with her into that room. Oh, absolutely. She, she's yeah. going in that room all by herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of people are dealing uh, with family. Oh, these days who are walking and I have a good friend, a neighbor, and it's interesting just day by day to see him walking into a room that I know that uh, he's not going to be able to come out of and I can't go in there with him. I, you know, when it comes to Alzheimer's, I think of the 139th Psalm. Um, There isn't any place I can go where God is not. Uh, if I go up to the heavens, if I go down to the depths, wherever wherever it is. I remember my brother, I was sitting on the floor in front of him, and I was massaging his feet. He had no idea who I was. And uh, mm-hmm. I was massaging his feet, and he was going, mmm, mmm. And I looked up into his blank eyes, and I had this keen awareness that beyond the Alzheimer's, there's God, and beyond the Alzheimer's, there's Joe, and they are together. There's no—even if I—so if I were rewriting the 139th Psalm, I'd say, even if I go down to the depths of Alzheimer's, you are there. Uh, God was holding him beyond the Alzheimer's. Uh, Excuse me, that makes me tear up. I cried all the way home. There was this new awareness. There's absolutely no place, no place that I can go where God is not. Mm. 
And you've also been a good example uh, for Gloria and me of a good marriage. The two of you evidently had it together, at least on, from, from our perspective. Uh, you, you really did. And you lose half of your life, or I, I, probably not a good, a good way to say it, but you lose the primary person out of your life. Right. And, and yet, you're one of the most healthy, whole persons I know as an individual. That is amazing. And, you know, and so many times for young kids, when they're going to get married, uh, I, sometimes I feel like they're looking for their completer, the mm. person that can make them whole. Yeah. You know, and I know that ain't going to work. It no. doesn't. It doesn't work. You've got to be whole yourself. If that's your expectation, you're in trouble. <laughs> you're, 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 you're. So here's a marriage of fifty-three years of joy and of doing your work together, your life's work together, and uh, and then a big part of that is gone. Uh-huh. And, and now, how, but how long have you been a widow now? Sixteen years. You've been a widow now for sixteen years. Mm-hmm. And I haven't seen, if it's there, I'm sure you have times of loneliness when you're by yourself, but but you've gone on with your journey to say, okay. Uh, well, part of that, Bill, one of the things Nathan kept saying to me was, uh, he kept saying, honey, promise me you won't stop living. Promise me you won't stop living. Oh, that's great. I and, love that. Uh, and, and he really meant that. And I remember way back when my mother died many, many years ago, at the age of 80, um, the last words I ever heard my mother say, now, honey, remember life is too wonderful to be spent grieving. And I walked out of that door and left her and went back to Japan, and I never saw her again, and I didn't even get to come back for her funeral. But those words resonate. Now, honey, remember life is too wonderful to be spent grieving. And then Nathan, many, many years later, Nathan is saying to me, honey, promise me you won't stop living. Um, Bill, I learned something in in the loss of Nathan that that you know you know things with your head, but you don't know them with your gut. You don't know them with your heart. You don't yeah. know them from experience. You don't know them. You just know it intellectually. Yeah. But experientially, the the depth of the meaning of that, I learned something when Nathan died. Um, I learned that happiness. And pain cannot coexist. If you're in pain, you're not happy. But I learned in a way that I cannot express fully to you that joy and pain can coexist in the same heart at the same time. <laughs> um, and the reason I, I experienced that, as we got close to death, we knew that it was not too far away. Nathan had so encouraged me to stay involved Throughout the journey with cancer, he was incredibly supportive. He'd say, honey, you have to stay involved because I feel so fulfilled through what you do. Now, that's the lesson that all of us need. One of the things for community, we need to learn fulfilled through what other people do. You know, I can feel fulfilled through what Bill and Gloria Gaither do, things that are way beyond anything that I could ever even imagine. But I pray for you. I care about you. So I, I, I feel you fulfilled do. when you when you do these things and people are blessed by it. So Nathan helped me to really zero in on that. But as death got closer, um, we realized that I needed to cancel appointments that I had in the future. Yeah. 
And there was one appointment Nathan said to me, honey, don't cancel that one. We, we sat together and went over the schedule and made phone calls. And I, I said, you know, death is approaching. Uh, I need to cancel. But he kept saying, don't cancel that one. And I said, but what if death comes just a few days before I'm supposed to be there? That's not fair to those people. I know, I know, he said, but don't cancel that one. And I promised. Well, he died the 5th of August, and this was the first week in October, exactly two months after his death. And I was supposed to speak in another state. And the subject that they had given me to speak on was joy. (laughs) And I said, God, I cannot do this. And I found myself, I had this appointment but I had promised the love of my life that I would keep that assignment. And I'd die before I'd break that promise to him. The first month, I, I did nothing except do the things that you do in numbness, taking care of all the business sure, things. Sure, you. Sure. The second month, I researched everything I could find on joy, every scripture I could find. I reread Tim Hansel's little book, You Gotta Keep Dancing. I did all of that. <laughs> I, I just... I focused on, and I kept begged God to somehow come to me in this. So the day came, and I was going to this other state, was driving. And, uh, well, anyway, I won't tell you all the details, but I spoke I spoke on the difference between happiness and joy. Uh, this, this is good. What I will tell you is... I closed with the words that the way Tim Hansel closes his book, you got to keep dancing. There is no box created by God nor us, but what the top can be blown off and the sides flattened out to create a dance floor in which to celebrate life. Now say that again. Okay, that's so good. Say it again. There is, there is no box created by God nor us, but what the top can be blown off and the sides flattened out to create a dance floor on which to celebrate life. I said to these people, I am in the midst of the greatest pain I have ever experienced in my life, but because I kept this assignment, I've done this work about joy, and I've discovered that in the midst of the greatest pain you can feel, there's this little trickle of joy that keeps shooting up in the midst of that pain. <laughs> it was it, Nathan knew something I didn't know. I am so glad he he gave me that final gift of pushing me to discover something that I probably never would have discovered if I had not made that promise to him. Bill, I am so blessed. Ninety-five years old and blessed, right? Oh, blessed beyond measure. And you have been such a help to Gloria and me in your mission statements, I guess I'm trying to find the word. It seemed like when decades tick off to you, you say, okay, what am I going to do in the next 10 years? When did that start? When you were 70 or 60 or what? Well, the one of the real key milestones in my life was when I turned 70. I got so excited. I thought nothing so wonderful had ever happened to anybody. So I, I, when I turned 70, I took the month of January for reflection. And I 
just sat down and reflected on what has 70 years of living taught me. Uh, not what I'm supposed to believe, not, not that sort of thing. What has life taught me in 70 years? And um, I took three by five cards, and when I would discover something that life had taught me, I'd put it at the top of that card. So I had a, I had a whole stack of cards that I did in that month. And the very first one I did... I was overwhelmed by this, Bill. I was really overwhelmed. I put at the top of the card, God is committed to Ann Smith. I was blown away. I reflected on 70 years of living and my growing up years. I don't recall hearing sermons about God's commitment to me. It was always about how committed I needed to be to God. And at (laughs) 70 to discover, wow, God is so committed to my journey I, I I can't tell you how exciting that was to discover that. Uh, and, and the second thing I did, second card I did was I discovered that life is like being on a trapeze. It's a constant letting go and taking hold. And in between the letting go and the taking hold, there's that, <gasps> you catch your breath, you know. Yeah. <laughs> am I going to really get hold of the next one or am I going to fall? What's going to happen? Uh, but anyway, I... Uh, I'm one of these who—I love one-liners. I love what-ifs. Yeah. I'm always asking, what if, what if? It's a constant discovery. I'm discovering so much right now. I'm excited over what I'm learning. Talk to me about the line that you did on expectations versus— uh, that, and that has to do with what you've invested your life in, music. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Way back, I don't know how many years ago it was, but it's many, many years ago when worship styles first started changing. Um, I would go to church every Sunday, and I'd all of a sudden, I don't know how long it took for me to catch on to this, but I realized I'd come away from church not really excited or, or challenged. I'd come away disappointed, to be honest. And so... When I walked out of church feeling disappointed, I knew something was wrong. And so I started processing and looking inside, you know, why am I feeling disappointed? Well, it was the style, I mean, the music was changing. I love the choir. I love the organ. I love the hymns. I love all of this, you know. <laughs> and all of a sudden, there were drums and, and yeah, guitars. And, 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 and all of these these singing well, I don't know. It, it was just not what I was accustomed to. <laughs> preach it, preach it, and preach it. <laughs> so I was feeling disappointed. So I started looking inside, and I said, oh, my goodness. Um, what I discovered was I was walking into church every Sunday morning with expectations, with an expectation of what it was going to be yeah. like. And when that expectation was not met, I walked out disappointed. Sure. So then I started asking questions, and I, one of the questions I asked myself, because it didn't meet my expectation, does that mean God didn't show up? <laughs> well, of course it didn't mean that. It just meant I couldn't see Him because I was so focused on my expectation. I yeah. couldn't feel Him. I couldn't see Him. My expectation was so much my focus yeah. that I couldn't see all of the other that surrounded the lack of having that expectation fulfilled. So I made a conscious decision that on Sunday morning when I walk through the doors of the sanctuary, I will enter with expectancy. I'll give God all the wiggle room He needs. He can do anything He wants to do. (laughs) I I will go with expectancy. And 
I'm never disappointed. <laughs> but initially, I will be honest with you, what I had to do is, in order to do this, I had to look for somebody who was being blessed by the style of music that I was having to get used to. And they would be blessed, and I'd sit there and think, say, oh, thank you, God, they're being so blessed. Help me to feel their, their joy. Help me to, you know, and so it was initially focusing on other people and their joy and the, and the music that they were experiencing. So expectancy. Bill, you know and I know that when you have an expectation of a person, a specific, the one that's really important to you, yeah. and they do not meet that expectation, yeah. Yeah. you miss all the wonderfulness of that person, all that surrounds that person. It's like... Well, you know the old thing. You put up a big sheet of white paper, and you put a black dot in the middle, and you say to people, what do you see? I see a black dot. Yeah. Nobody ever says, I see a lot of white space with a black dot in the middle. <laughs> uh, so expectations make us blind. And I really do believe there are all kinds of blessings circling around over my head, looking for a place to land. But sometimes my heart is so full of expectations, they can't find a place to land. Let me throw a statement at you. I, uh, I think this is original from me. I don't know. Probably somebody else has said it. But after being in the Christian church publicly doing what we do, I'm convinced that the majority of Christians do not know the difference between their cultural preferences and their theological absolutes. Most of the time, I think they're voting as you were voting on the music style, on their cultural preferences. And do we have those? Absolutely. Nobody loves a great choir any more than I. I just love to hear the harmony and the mm -hmm. parts, you know. Oh, I love that. And I got a good friend who's got a mega church, you know, 10,000 people and no choir. So how can you do this without the harmony of a choir, <laughs> you know? Well, they're doing it and God is getting the glory and yeah. good things are going on. I think we vote too many times and we use different words. This is spiritual. This is not spirit. This is godly. This is ungodly. This is anointed. <laughs> mm, mm. And this music is not anointed. Well, uh, do you have an anointing uh, mechanism that, 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 that can measure <laughs> that? can measure that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, if you really want to deal with that, one really great thing to do is to live cross-culturally for some, for some time. You are forced to think about how much of your thinking is Western and how much of it is Christian. That's the answer. Uh, That's the you know, answer. How much of it is cultural and how much of it is really theological. Uh, theological. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that troubles me most uh, is I, I really believe God's a lot more concerned about my spirit than is my theology. <laughs> I really believe that. I think I agree with you. I think I agree with you. If my spirit is wrong, no matter how accurate my theology is, I do damage to the work of the kingdom. Okay, let me put it in uh, Hoosier farm terms. My okay. Uncle, my uncle Jess, great uncle, said to one, he had five, six brothers, to one of the brothers, so they're all gone now, so I want to protect all the families here, okay? But my Uncle Jess said to one of the brothers who was being critical of something happening in the church, and he said, you better be careful. You can be dead wrong in being dead right. 
which is probably about oh. the uh, oh. same thing you're saying. You, you oh, could, it is. You could have all your theology right, and the spirit in which you're approaching it could be wrong. Let me throw uh, – this is so much before fun. Before you leave it, that, before you leave that, let me just say one thing. <laughs> one of my challenges, Bill, is how can I model, communicate, live out what I believe to be right and true and not hurt other people with it? Yep. Yep. Excuse me. You were going to say something. And you I know what? That brilliant thought came in and left as quickly as it came. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> and it just came back. We just we just saw uh, the movie uh, Mr. Rogers. Oh, I'm eager to see that. The one thing that was interesting was this, or the several things that were interesting. He touched on it, on an emotion that everybody has, but not everybody is willing to admit they have it. Because when the little kid says, what do you do when you get mad? And he said, that is a very normal, normal feeling mm-hmm. that we have. Mm-hmm. And then he opened up the whole, the whole field of anger. And in his quiet way, he said, how do we deal with anger? Uh-huh. <laughs> Just his spirit and dealing with it was simply we cannot react to anger with more anger because all we're going to get is a bigger, bigger piece of anger that we uh, cannot handle. But we're living in a time where it seems like the anger level is at an all-time high. What are we going to do about this as, as an individual, as a family, as a community, as a church, as a state, as a nation, as a world. What are we going to do with our anger? Um, I'm, I believe that anything that lowers self-esteem increases hostility. And one of the things about our culture is that uh, we with all of our technology and everything, we don't have to do it face-to-face. It's so easy to lower everybody. And it seems to be the name of the game. Everybody's lowering everybody else's self-worth. Anything that lowers self-esteem increases hostility. And the hostility is just blossoming. I mean, it's just magnificent. I think we as individuals have to take seriously, look inside and say, do I lower other people's self-esteem? Um, by that, I mean the critical attitude, the, the looking for faults, for looking for things you can disagree, instead of looking for what things, of building bridges and that sort of thing. I, I'm just so—I'll say this anyway. I went, <laughs> I went with a class at the university the other day. I was a guest in a class. I had the best—I came away so fired up and so challenged and so—and I don't know how it came up, but— um, I said something in this class that um, I have difficulty with American humor. Well, I got their attention immediately. Yeah. Because, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then they kept talking, and I said, well, you, do you want to know what my definition of a dirty joke is? 
<laughs> Here's this 95-year-old retired missionary saying, you want to know what my definition of a dirty joke is? <laughs> okay. And I said, anything that puts another person down or laughs at broken relationships, laughs at brokenness of any kind, is dirty and hurt. It's, it's hurt, and hurt is dirt, and that's what makes it a dirty joke. It may be about sex, but it's not sex that makes it dirty. It's it's putting down another person, lowering their self-esteem, increasing the hostility. I loved being with that class. They were they were engaging. They were engaging. <laughs> Talk to me about the statement of I want to flow. Like a what, what? What do you say? Oh, my theme for the re- actually, this is the theme for the rest of my life. Okay, let's hear it. Let's I, hear it. Uh, my theme for this year is for this year specifically. It's coming to an end. Is to let my spirit blossom while my body deteriorates. Okay, and that's my theme for the year. <laughs> but my theme for the for the rest of my life is to stand like a mountain, immovable, unshakable for those things which are foundational. God is. He cares. He's made a way for us to be in relationship to him. Those things. Yeah. Stand like a mountain, immovable and unshakable, while at the same time flowing like life-giving water. And if I'm honest, I would say that as I look at Christendom in, in America, we have people who stand like a mountain but do not flow. Yeah. Are hurtful in their standing. Yeah. And sometimes we have people who flow but don't particularly stand. Stand for anything. Yeah. yeah. So my goal is to stand like a mountain, immovable and unshakable for those things that are foundational, but at the same time to flow like life-giving water. That's my theme for the rest of my life. And we could continue this for days, but this has been a joy being with you today. And, uh, of course, the good thing, and I want to tell the folks here listening, this sweet lady just lives 10 miles from us, and anytime we want this kind of stuff going on in our lives, we say, how about a cup of coffee? How about an Olive Garden? Or how yeah. about Cracker Barrel? Yeah. Let's, uh, yeah. let's break some bread and talk about the recent stuff that is getting us up in the morning and getting us excited about life. And that is not a one-way street. It's a two-way street. Bill and Gloria have contributed to my life in ways that they're totally unaware Let me give you a lyric to close this out. I did not write it. My son wrote this, and I'm proud of him for doing this one with a a country writer in Nashville. I'm going to love like I'm leaving, give more than I'm receiving, going to laugh until it takes my breath away. I'm going to say what needs saying, pray what needs praying. I'm going to love like I'm leaving here today. Wow. Is that a lyric? (laughs) I want to love like I believe in here today. Ann Smith, you epitomize that, and it's always a joy to be with you. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for joining me for this episode of More Than the Music. For details on the Gaither Vocal Band tour dates, the latest Gaither music releases, and much more, visit us online at gaither.com. This is Bill Gaither signing off until the next edition of More Than the Music.